can go to John 8. Um, you'll understand why we're taking not-so-huge chunks, because already I have too much to say. So imagine if I... I'd feel like I'm saying nothing about the text if we had larger chunks of text here. So, Beginning at verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are the offspring of Abraham, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it? that you say, you will become free. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, Yet you seek to kill me, because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would teach us your way, that we might walk in truth. Purify our hearts, unite them in wholeheartedness that we might have a godly fear of you, trusting your Son and receiving your word this morning. We ask this through Christ, who is himself the way, the truth, and the life. Amen. Interesting statistics when you think about it, but according to the demographics from the U.S. government, in 2008, 75% of adult Americans self-identified as Christians. 75%. It was only six years ago. I see that furrowed brow as you're confused about that, that statistic. Statistics indicate that on an average Sunday, 40% of Americans are in church. These sound good, right? So why are we, as a nation, so messed up? Why do we struggle with so many of the problems that plague us as a nation? Why is it that it seemingly at every turn there is a moral decay that is eating away at the foundation of this nation? I think it's the same reason that Jesus felt he needed to speak to these people in verse 30 who had just expressed some kind of faith in him, what true discipleship is. They had a profound misunderstanding of what it meant to believe in Jesus. And so I think today there is a rampant misunderstanding of what it means to trust in Jesus. So that's what Jesus is bringing them to, and therefore that's what he's bringing us to this morning. The big idea is that Jesus liberates true disciples from slavery to sin, but we got to get there first in terms of how we think about this. Let's think about 
true disciples. That's going to be the kind of the theme that runs through each of these three points. And I want to say three things about true disciples. And the first thing I want to say is that true disciples remain in and under his word. Okay, I'm trying to bring out kind of what it means to be in his word. Jesus, again, as I said, is talking to those who seem to believe in him. And what seems to be going on from my perspective is they've got a partial truth. There's something Jesus said. And within the context, it's probably with his conflict with the Pharisees. And there were many there who probably didn't like the Pharisees, who felt that they were kind of under the thumb of the Pharisees, you know, those religious fundamentalist guys. You know, who likes them? And so Jesus was kind of going against the Pharisees. And in that respect, they were like, yeah, we're on board with you, Jesus. And so that, that's what I believe is sort of the faith that they had. And so that partial faith is, or that partial truth that they're clinging to was substituting for all truth and therefore was no truth. So Jesus is going to speak to them so that they understand what it really means to believe in him. Okay? And therefore, he also wants us to understand the nature of true discipleship and true faith. So Jesus says, if you abide or remain in my word. And so the first thing that we need to understand and they needed to understand about true discipleship and true faith is that it remains in Christ's word. Now, that word remain, that's a key word in this passage. It's going to keep popping up in unexpected places. It's the same word that is used in John 15, where again, he's talking about discipleship. And he says, if, if you remain in me, I will remain in you. My word will remain in you. You will bear much fruit. That, all of that stuff about the parable of the vine. That's the word that's used right here. Remain. In other words, I think we can say that to abide in Christ is to abide in his word. They're used in parallel with one another. We cannot say that we abide or remain in Christ if we do not remain in his word. And neither can we remain in his word if we're not really remaining in him. So this is speaking, it's pointing us to this reality of union in Christ. And one of the manifestations of our union with Christ is that we remain in his word, united to his word. For instance, 1 John chapter 2, verse 19 They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. Did you get John's logic there? There are people who left the church, and they appeared at one point to be a part of the church, but John says they really weren't, because if they were, they would have stayed here. It's not just that they've gone to a different church, it's that they've left altogether, okay? That idea of remaining in his word, well, as we're going to sort of unpack in a little bit, but we remain connected to his word. Now, that sounds very, very vague right now, doesn't it? 
Hold on. Okay? True discipleship is coming under the authority of Christ as it is expressed in his word. That's what Jesus is getting at. That's what I want us to understand when we talk about remaining in his word. We are coming under his authority. We're not just believing what he says in terms of who he is, but we are believing that what he tells us to do is also good, right, and holy, and we seek to follow that as best we can in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so true discipleship recognizes that if I, if I want to be transformed, as Paul says in Romans 12, I must first be renewed in my mind. I need to begin to think God's thoughts after him, and the only way for me to do that is to be engaged with the Word of God regularly, and I would say even systematically. Okay, This is what you should not be doing. Okay? It's time for me to read my Bible today. Let's see what I should read. Oh, look, it's Psalm 143. Okay. Now, that might be good once in a while, but you'll never understand the whole Scriptures with that approach. You'll never understand how the Bible fits together with that approach. You'll never see how each part of it reflects the overall message of of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration with that that model. We want to become, let's say, literate in the Scriptures. We want literacy, understanding. Now, if I were to ask some of you, how... Do the movies differ from the Tolkien books? You could give me many ways in which they differ. Okay? You could tell me whether or not Legolas was really in The Hobbit, like he is in the movie. All right? You could tell me these things. You should also be able to tell me the main things about Scripture, the main idea of particular books. That's not a seminary guy thing. That's supposed to be an ordinary Christian kind of thing. That's that's the fruit of remaining in Christ's Word. That's one of the fruits of it. So, let's kind of step back from the objective aspect. Let's look at the subjective aspect and the, the reality that each of us has an inner dialogue with ourselves. And that inner dialogue includes who we are and what we should do or think we should do. Okay? You talk to yourself all day. Right? Is there there anyone here who does not talk to themselves all day? Good. All right. We're on the same page. (laughs) Thought I was crazy for a moment. Okay? So we have this inner dialogue, and right now I want to focus on what we want. Okay? And the reality is, is that we can often speak lies to ourselves, okay? Because sin is deceitful and lies to us. It lies to us about our desires, and it encourages us to satisfy these various desires that we have in the course of a day by saying that they are good, 
and you will receive great benefit from satisfying these desires. And we all have this inner dialogue that goes on with ourselves. Okay? You've probably talked to yourself many times already today about what you want. As disciples, Jesus is saying, you begin to listen to him more than you begin to listen to your desires. More than you begin to listen to, or you generally listen to your bellies, or your fears, or your other desires. Okay? It's sort of like this. Oftentimes, our inner dialogue is sort of like, uh, if those of you who have children, or if you're a child, you recognize this. Okay, some adults do this too, don't worry. When they go on a rant, they're upset about something, they're afraid of something, something's going on, and, and they just, they're like crying, yelling, screaming at you, the parent. Okay, and you're trying to get a word in edgewise. And they just, it's just a, 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 a fire hydrant of words, and you can't break the cycle. Okay, Adult, see, adults do that too sometimes. All right. Don't worry, kids. Hopefully you'll grow out of it. Christ is trying to break through, just like a parent tries to break through that, that rant, to speak the truth to you through his word. The spirit is engaged in that moment and trying to bring scripture to your mind to break your, your self-will, so to speak, your self-thinking about those desires to give you a biblical understanding of those desires so that you will submit to him as opposed to submitting to yourself. That, that makes sense? That clear? We see this, or what's supposed to be taking place anyway, in things like Psalm 119, that famous uh, psalm, and uh, there's a song by Amy Grant, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That's what's supposed to be. It's supposed to be guiding us and directing us. We're supposed to see the light that it sheds and walk in that way. That's what's supposed to be happening as disciples of Christ. As disciples of Christ, we should go with Paul in Colossians 3 where he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. What Paul is describing should be the ordinary experience of someone who names the name of Jesus. It is not to be the extraordinary experience of those pastor guys or those elders. The ordinary Christian is intended to dwell richly in Christ's word so that it dwells richly in him so that they are speaking it to one another. They're singing from it in praise to God and with thanksgiving. You see, that's a picture of what it means to remain in his word. Now, later on in this passage that we're dealing with, Jesus criticizes these people when he says, my word finds no place in you. Okay? They're supposed to be remaining and abiding in his word, but Jesus says that my word has no place in you. In other words, you're not abiding in it, and it's not abiding in you. And why does he say this? 
you seek to kill me. In other words, they had been pondering in their self-thought how they might rid themselves of Jesus just moments before. They were amongst the crowd who earlier had wanted to put Jesus to death because he was so radical. This is in line with what Jesus says in Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, is the one who will enter the kingdom of heaven. And so uh, these people that Jesus is interacting with, uh, they're very fickle. They're being driven by their passions. Their shifting desires are what's controlling them. They're not being controlled by the eternal word of God. And as I thought about this when I was walking the other day, it's, they're like sailboats without a rudder. Okay? When you have a rudder, you, you direct the boat. You're in control of where the wind takes you. But if there's no rudder, you go wherever the wind blows. And that's the person who's not in submission to the word of God. Uh, you know, now my desires take me over here. And a half an hour now, they're going to take me over there. And I'm always shifting directions. And it looks like I have no stability. And I seem like a very double-minded person because I'm only following my latest, greatest desire. I have no direction. I guess, except to please myself. That's what Jesus is warning about. So true disciples are transformed by the renewing of their mind by remaining in the Word of God. Second thing I want us to think about as, in terms of true disciples is that Jesus sets true disciples free. See, uh, those who remain in His Word, He says, will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So as we remain in the, tr- in the word, we will learn or understand more and more the truth, the fullness of the truth. And that process, we will be set free. Now, there's a parallel sentence within this very paragraph here. Jesus says, if the Son sets you free. Now, wait a minute. Didn't he just talk about the truth setting you free, and now he's talking about the Son setting you free? Are are these opposed to one another? Is Jesus confused? Is he being contradictory? And no, he's not being contradictory. Precisely because Jesus is the truth, along with being the way and the life. And so Jesus liberates those who remain in him through the word, which is also the truth. Spoken by him. Now, we see as well that Jesus is the liberator. From Luke 4, in which Jesus is quoting from Isaiah 61, he's teaching from it in the synagogue, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Jesus is the liberator. But here's the small small problem. These people realize they're no longer tracking with Jesus because they're basically saying, we don't need to be liberated. We don't need to be set free because they say, we have never been enslaved. Now, 
They weren't morons, okay? They knew that as a people they had been enslaved by Egypt. Okay, so they seem to be saying that there's more going on here than just their political status at various points in the history of their people. Okay? Redemption from Egypt in its slavery was a picture of redemption, a picture of salvation. What's supposed to take place, what they were supposed to understand was that they were under the, the lordship of Egypt and were oppressed, but God called them out of Egypt, out of their slavery, to serve him. Okay? And so that's kind of the idea that they've got. They think they're serving him, despite their political status at any given point in time. But here's what's a little wrong. Okay? Let's look at it this way. I can either invite Jesus into my kingdom, the kingdom of Steve, okay, or I can hear his call and enter his kingdom. What's the difference between those two things? I want the benefits of Jesus in the kingdom of Steve. I want his benefits. But I don't necessarily want to submit to him. Okay? That's a false understanding of discipleship. Where I can get his benefits... And, and I'm in charge. A truer understanding of discipleship is I enter into his kingdom. I get his benefits, but I also recognize he's the king, not me. He's in charge, not me. Now, all of us struggle with the kingdom of Steve. Well, except, of course, for you, it's the kingdom of whatever your name is. You know, Ken struggles with the kingdom of Ken. Although I'm sure there's times he struggles with the kingdom of Steve. (laughs) Because, you know, if I'm living in the kingdom of Steve, I want him to live there too. And you, Christopher. You. Okay? That's what we do. If I'm living in the kingdom of Steve, then you are all my subjects. You must do what I want. Okay? Okay? Or I get really mad at you and try to kick you out. Okay? But we all do that. We all do that. We all act like people, everyone else in this world should obey our desires. We're not living in the kingdom of Jesus. We're living in the kingdom of ourselves. So that's what these people are doing. It says, now they say, we are the offspring or seed of Abraham. So they, they viewed themselves, what's going on here is that they view themselves as very privileged people. Rabbi Akaba, I think that's how you pronounce his name, he called Jews sons of the king. And so, you know, there's a lot of Christians who talk a lot like that as well. That's like, and we are that. We're sons of the king. However, they viewed themselves as spiritually privileged. Therefore, they didn't view themselves as enslaved like Jesus is talking about. They're confused people. And Jesus reminds them what he's really talking about. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. They practiced sin, Jesus is saying. Therefore, you are enslaved to sin. He's talking about the inner bondage. Okay? I, I've never had physical chains on my limbs, but I know 
the spiritual chains of addiction, slavery to sin. I experienced this. Augustine experienced this. He wrote, Bound as I was, not with another man's irons, but by my own iron will. My will the enemy held, and hence had made a chain for me and bound me. So he's talking about before he was a Christian, and this is exactly what we see in Ephesians 2, uh, by nature sons of wrath, and we, oh, we followed the prince of power of the air obeying him. And so the, that idea there in Ephesians 2 is exactly what Augustine is talking about. My will was enslaved by the enemy, and I was in chains, spiritual chains. I mentioned addiction because I think addiction is, a, is, is often misunderstood. And really, a large part of it is spiritual slavery. Ed Welch calls addiction uh, bondage to the rule of a substance, activity, or state of mind, which then becomes the center of life, defending itself from the truth so that even bad consequences don't bring repentance and leading to further estrangement from God. In other words, it binds your will in such a way that even the negative consequences of that addiction are not enough for you to say, set me free, because you think the payoff is good enough. Okay? And so Ed Welch in his book, um, Banquet in the Grave, speaks of addiction as a sort of moving from sin the practice of a particular sin, into slavery for that sin, you know, by that sin, and then you move into the tragedy, or what I'm going to call the misery of that sin. Okay? This is the idea. The more you sin in a particular way, the more you want to sin in that particular way, and the more you therefore do sin in that particular way. Let's talk about food. Oh, food's not a sin. Gluttony is a sin. Just like if you, you know, drinking alcohol is not sinful, but if you have too much and get drunk, you've committed a sin. Well, if you eat too much, you're committing an act of gluttony. Okay? One of the big, big gluttony days is coming. Anyone know what that big gluttony day is? That's not what I had in mind. <laughs> As a Protestant, I don't celebrate Fat Tuesday, but I celebrate the Super Bowl, by golly. <laughs> Especially if the Patriots are in it. Yes, I'm going to, you know. And we have two people who just got back from a cruise. They're not here this morning. But I'm sure, you know, you're in the buffet every day. The more you eat. So if you, if you sin in terms of gluttony one day, your stomach has to expand to accommodate that food. And guess what? Your stomach doesn't shrink so fast. Ask anyone who's dieting. <laughs> okay? The more you eat, the more you want to eat next time. What used to make you full doesn't make you full anymore. Unless you resist that temptation to feel full. The more you eat, 
the more you want to eat, which means the more you eat, and then you get to the next feast day, whichever that is, something, you eat more. And now you begin to you're enslaved to your belly. You're not just an occasional glutton, now you have become a glutton. Do you understand? I was so thankful. Marty and I went to um, the hub the other day. I'd never been to the hub. And I, we got the, the little, I got the um, chicken pot pie. That's what I got. And I first thought, that doesn't look too big. When I was 130 pounds, I used to be able to out-eat people who were about 220, like football player type people, linebacker kind of guys at buffets, okay? I was a glutton. Thankfully, when I was done, I was like, I feel full. That was more than I thought it was. Maybe my stomach is shrinking. Maybe. I have hope that my stomach is shrinking, okay? And here's the bad news. As people with idolatrous hearts, remember John Calvin said that... Our heart is a factory of idols. Because we are this factory of idols, we are all, we all have addictive personalities. It's just a different addiction, that's all. There's a different thing we're going to make our God that make us happy. We need liberation, brothers and sisters. Now, Romans 6 talks about this in a final way. But thanks be to God, in verse 17 that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you, you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. And so there's something that happens by virtue of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that means that we are set free from sin. Okay? Now there's the, the initial set free. Justification means that we have been set free from the penalty of our sin. Okay? We're no longer in a state of condemnation. We're now in a state of grace. Okay? But that's not the end of the story. That's not the whole story. Because if I were to, to, you know, get one-on-one with you, you would be able to tell me the ways in which you still practice sin. But you'd also be able to tell me ways in which you no longer sin or at least as frequently. Hopefully, right? Okay? And so Jesus is also, at this time, setting you free from the practice of sin, if you are a Christian. That's what we mean when we talk about sanctification. That's the process of Jesus setting us free from the practice of sin as our liberator. It's not something that we accomplish, but that he accomplishes because of his work within us. And it's all connected to his death and resurrection and ascension. Men's group, we were talking about that. That's a necessary belief, the ascension of Jesus Christ. But it's not all going to be done now because there's still the presence of sin. Glorification means that Jesus saves us once and for all, finally, from the presence of sin. And so we're being, we're being, we have been set free from the, the, Penalty of sin, we are being set free from the practice of sin, and we will be set free from the presence of sin by Jesus, who is our liberator. So the Son sets those who remain in the Word free from their slavery to sin. That's an important thing for us to remember. 
Calvin, again, when he speaks about our being united to Christ, he says we receive the, do, the double grace, justification and sanctification. Union with Christ. Okay, the third thing I want us to reckon with in terms of true disciples is that true disciples aren't born but reborn. Let's return to what they say to Jesus. We are the offspring of Abraham. Let's also return to our inner dialogue. Okay? We think things about ourselves. And they're thinking something about themselves. And they're verbalizing it. We are the offspring of Abraham. Don't you understand, Jesus? We can trace our physical descent from this guy, Abraham, what are you talking about being enslaved? How could you possibly think we are being enslaved? Now, on the one hand, we'll see that Jesus is about to affirm their physical descent, but he also says that they do what they have heard from their father. And when he's speaking that way, he's referring to the fact that they sought to kill him. We're going to get to that next week, who their father really is, okay? Jesus drops a gospel bomb on them, okay? But here, the point is, is that they're thinking these great thoughts about themselves, but these thoughts have no basis in reality. This morning as I was pondering this, I thought of that fantastic movie, Jonah, Veggie Tales. I'm sure many of you have seen this. If not, you should watch it. There is the caterpillar. I think he's a caterpillar. Khalil. Khalil listens to his self-improvement tapes. And he talks to himself, repeating what he says. You are beautiful. You are powerful. You are selling many things. You know, he's got these little self-improvement tapes that he listens to in the bottom of the boat. You know, while he's hiding from the crew. Because he's actually, I think, he might be uh, a run, uh, not a runaway, stowaway. That's sometimes what we do. We all have this inner tape that we repeat. And it could be false glory on the one hand, or it could be false shame on the other. Or you could change tapes throughout the day, depending on your mood. Today I feel good about myself. Steve, you are awesome. You are incredible. Everybody likes you. You're important. And then, you know, I do something wrong and I switch tapes. Steve, you are a complete loser. Steve, you are a moron, an idiot, and a scumbag. Okay? And I, we go back and forth between these two tapes. That's what we do. I had to tell my brother, John, dude, you need a new tape. I don't think he got it. <laughs> but anyway. They thought they were sons. That's the tape they were playing. But in reality, they were slaves. Now, remember that word, abide, remain? That pops up again here. Jesus says, slaves will not remain or abide in the house, but the son does. In other words, you stay a slave, you're going to be kicked out. That's why you need the son to set you free. So you can remain in the father's house. Jesus will remain. Paul says something very much like that in Galatians 4. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. 
So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. But the Judaizers were sons of the slave. That was my little addition to clarify. And so you have these thoughts about yourself, and what are those thoughts? Do they match God's thoughts? Do they? Is it only sinner, or is it sinner justified by the grace of God in Jesus Christ? Is it only saint? Or is there to remember that saints who stumble but get back up by grace of God? So are, are our thoughts about ourselves in line with what Jesus says about us in the Scriptures? I was a slave to sin, and Jesus has set me free, or is it, I don't need anything to be set free from? You are offspring of Abraham, Jesus says. He, he concedes their physical descent, but he recognizes and teaches that this is not the key. Because who else were offspring of Abraham? Ishmael? Esau? Did they receive the kingdom? No. It's not physical descent that matters. Okay? Not at all. But we see that Jeremiah sort of brings up something in in chapter 9 that Deuteronomy alludes to, and it's this. Verse 25 of Jeremiah 9. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Meaning, those who are descendants or offspring of Abraham physically, but not spiritually, because they have not been circumcised in the heart. Okay? Paul picks up on this. Romans 2. But a Jew is one inwardly, or I should say a true Jew, Paul would say, is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And so Paul picks up on what Deuteronomy and Jeremiah are talking about, not only in Romans 2, but also in Romans 9. For all, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He gets back to that idea that it's not about your physical descent. It's not about how you were born. That's about how you're reborn. Just as he said to Nicodemus in John 3, you must be born again. True disciples are those who have been born again, who have experienced the circumcision of the heart. And so what matters is this circumcision of the heart. True disciples remain or abide in God's thoughts about them. They do not abide in their false glory or their false shame. But they know who they are outside of Christ and in Christ. All right, let's wrap this thing up. The church in America has a problem that's very similar, as I mentioned, to that of Israel in Jesus' day. They thought much of themselves, and they thought much of their relationship with God, but they had no understanding of what true faith was, of what true discipleship was, or what true religion was. From the beginning, they were to walk 
in the truth, and so are we. When we enter into the kingdom by faith, we are under the authority of King Jesus, who liberates us from our previous slavery to sin. So Jesus speaks the truth to us so that we'll believe the truth about ourselves and, more importantly, about him. So this text causes us to ask questions about ourselves, or should cause us to ask questions about ourselves. Does his word have a place in us? Are we in his kingdom? Or is he merely a visitor in yours? Let's pray. Father, indeed, we uh, are mindful that we have a capacity to deceive ourselves that um, is the same as these people that Jesus was talking to. And we need your word to disrupt all that. To show us who Jesus is, to show us who we really are, show us how much we need him. Father, help us to walk in the truth by faith. So that as true disciples of Jesus, we would bear much fruit. That our faith would not just be an intellectual thing, but it would be one that by which we are transformed in our entire life. But what we think about money and food and sex and homes and cars and kids and all of life continue to rewire, rewire us, re, renew our minds that you might transform our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.